Welcome back to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 8, UNT, the second week of January 1940. The Russian invasion of Finland had hit a roadblock. It's a corner of Europe insulated through much of the year by ice. Historically, as Eric Danzi noted in a fantastic analysis published in 1946, Finland was a great prize and a battlefield initially for Sweden and Russia until the Germans replaced the Swedes as the principal enemies of the Russians, when she became a flank for the new battlefield. Up until then, the Finns were presumed to have, let's say, an underdeveloped political instinct, preferring to seek brave and astute individual leaders to defend them in the unfortunate geographical location. What we need to remember is that the Finns actually migrated into Finland from the North Caspian countryside late in the first millennium and drove the laps north across the Arctic Circle. The area had been repeatedly assailed since then by Sweden, then Napoleon, then the Russians. When the Finnish civil war broke out shortly after the First World War, both sides were supported externally, the left by the Russians, the right by the Germans. Independent Finland, before the outbreak of the Winter War, was never sure about her democracy. The majority of citizens wanted democracy on the Western pattern, partly because of logical sympathies, but the extreme right remained powerful, particularly in the army. Between the two world wars, the people in Finland lived in fear of the Russians, despite what Moscow's propagandists were sprouting. When the world war began to brew up prior to this winter war, the Finnish instinct was to look west, not east. When the Russian invasion began on the 29th of November 1939, the Finns went from vacillating to vehement nationalists. Here was a great power attacking without any ultimatum or declaration of war, bullying a small nation after a border provocation similar to the Nazi practice. Then the Russians bombed civilian targets and workers' quarters. What I've glossed over to some extent was Russia's attempt at launching a puppet government, which infuriated the Finns still further. So this was not about distant islands and minor border adjustments, but about national existence, life and death. And this is important in 2024. Because what is going on now is a growth in tension between both Sweden and Finland and Russia. The Finns even now, although a well-traveled people, do not easily see beyond their frontiers. And this is part of the story of why the Soviets' decision to invade Finland in 1939 was so catastrophic for the Red Army. This all needs to be mentioned as we settle into episode 8, and we're back in mid-January 1940. In the north, along the Arctic Road between the Finnish harbour town of Petsamo and Mamansk, the Russians had been forced to introduce armoured patrols to try and halt Valenius's men, and blockhouses and other strong points had been built along five-mile intervals. The blizzards that had lashed Lapland were some of the most potent ever recorded, and the Russian invasion here had ground to a halt. It was averaging minus 35 centigrade, and the Red Army had been stopped at a little village called Nautsi, which is close to the Norwegian border in the west. There were now over 10,000 Russian troops stuck along this road, all the way to Petsamo in the east, held up by the weather, and around 2,000 Finnish troops. However, Russian General Gusevsky, further south, who commanded the 54th Division, understood the dangers and the territory. He had summed up the situation around Sumasalmi and decided to alter his tactics. For one thing, he had trained his men to use skis and how to survive in the frozen wilderness. Their morale was a notch above all other Red Army soldiers. When we last heard about Gusevsky, he was driving westwards on two routes south of Sumasalmi and had reached Kumo village. This was a major threat to Finnish defences, and Commander Silasvo 
was ordered to move south with his 9th Division to halt the Russian advance here, joining another Finnish battalion already in the location. It was the 18th of January 1940 when Silas Voa began moving two battalions ahead by truck, hurrying them ahead of his force to take up position at Nermis. This is almost directly south of Kumo, and if you take a look at the map, it places the two battalions in a position to cut off Gusevsky's men from the eastern supply route. In the end, three Finnish battalions managed to halt Gusevsky's advance, and he dug in, prepared to now play the longer game, aware that his material advantage would wear down the Finns in any protracted conflict. Gusevsky had already begun the process of building his defences before the arrival of the two battalions sent by Silasvur. All these were significant and well-planned and constructed. His artillery and mortars were dug into bunkers that were almost impossible to penetrate by the Finns using their Motti system. Gusevsky was aware of being cut off and had smoothed out a frozen lake surface inside his area of control to use for light aircraft. The Soviet 23rd Division had formed up to the east of this region and was readying itself to support Gusevsky. Silashvur moved some of his troops into a ridge line with a good view of the approach in Loitavara. This was a key point of control. Anyone who had command of this ridge could survey a wide area, and any approach by the Russians would be risky unless they drove the Finns off the high ground. The Finns went into action, deploying their Motti tactics and managed to cut off the 54th logistics route. But Kushevsky understood by now what to do and sent patrols to cut down trees hundreds of meters around each of these isolated Russian positions along a line which became a dead zone for attackers. The Russians then used the timber they cut to reinforce their deep bunkers in these motis, a very different proposition from the previous assaults on the 163rd and 44th, where the Russian soldiers had wilted and been routed. The Finns hit the bunkers and blockhouses built by the Russians with their captured 76.2mm anti-tank weapons, but these just did not have the firepower to destroy the defences. Silas Vro had succeeded in halting Gushevsky's advance, but he just could not destroy the Red Army here. They were being supplied by air, and the Frozen Lake Aerodrome worked a charm, with the Red Air Force transport planes flying multiple sorties escorted by fighter aircraft. A game of cat and mouse developed with the Finns breaking the Russian codes, and some of the airdrops that followed saw supplies landing in the Finnish positions. Then the Russians figured out what was going on, and in the next supply run, which was conducted by bombers, dropped ordinances on the Finns instead, killing more than a dozen. Silas Vroer pleaded for anti-aircraft Bofors guns and received half a dozen of these vital weapons. Shortly after that, six Russian transports were shot down. Then the Russians switched to night flights to supply their units. This sector was going to see constant fighting all the way through March and the end of the war. By now, news of the staggering Soviet defeats at the battles of Sumasalmi and along the Rati Road meant considerable caution had been injected into all planning by the Russian 9th Army commanders. They wanted to ensure that the northern sector was secured, so sent the 88th Rifle Division from Archangel to reinforce their units. These took weeks to arrive. In fact, they pitched up only after hostilities ceased the march over the frozen White Sea Inlet took so long. So on the 13th of January, the Soviet Stavka issued orders to the 122nd Rifle Division to withdraw to Lake Markajavi, where the defences were stronger. The 122nd had made it more than 140 kilometres into Finland by now, and then turned around and retreated, harried constantly by the Finns as they did so. They arrived west of the lake and took up their positions, while the Finns who tracked them all the way set up their own defences in a semicircle facing these Russian units. It was here 
that the volunteer units made up of Swedish and Norwegian soldiers were to be so useful in maintaining pressure on the Russians. Task Force Sierra Foxtrot Kilo, or SFK, as it was known, Svenska Frivillekara, or Swedish Volunteer Corps, apologies for the pronunciation, was commanded by General Ernst Linder. Task Force SFK was unusual in that it could call in a Swedish Volunteer Aviation Group, which had six fighter aircraft and four light bombers. They would hold the Russians here for the rest of the war. Speaking of fighter aircraft, the Finns had a tiny air force equipped mostly with outdated machines. Despite that, their pilots punched above their weight. Flying for one of the oldest air forces in the world, pilots climbed aboard a diverse list of biplanes and monoplanes. The Finnish Air Force predates the Royal Air Force, it's so established, but when it came to the actual planes they could deploy through the Winter War, these were generally outdated. At the start of the Russian invasion, the Finnish Air Force had a grand total of 18 Bristol Blenheim bombers and 46 fighters. These were 32 modern Fokker D-21s and 14 obsolete Bristol Bulldogs. There were also 58 liaison aircraft, but 20 of these were only used for messages. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, had an estimated 5,000 aircraft, and of these, at least 700 fighters and 800 medium bombers came to the Finnish front to support the Red Army's operations. On paper, the Finnish air assets should have been no match for the attacking Soviet Red Air Force, except for one crucial tactic. The Finns had adopted the Finger 4 formation in the mid-1930s, which proved a much more effective formation than the Vic formation that many other militaries continued to use in 1939, except for the German Air Force. The Luftwaffe had developed the Finger 4 formation independently during the Spanish Civil War. Most air forces use the four-finger formation to this day, consisting of a flight of four aircraft, a lead element, and a second element, each of two aircraft. When viewing that formation from above, the positions of the planes resemble the tips of the four fingers of a human right hand without the thumb, giving the formation its name. The finger-four formation means four of these can be combined into a squadron of 16. During the 1930s, the Finnish Air Force was acutely aware of its weakness in numbers compared to its neighbours, and sought to offset the disadvantage by a radical rethink of its tactics. The new tactical philosophy emphasized aggression, a willingness to attack regardless of the costs, as well as shooting accuracy at a time when aerobatic skill was prized by most air forces. This meant aircraft in their new formations had greater vertical and horizontal separation, and so they were free to scan in all directions for enemy aircraft, rather than focusing on maintaining a close formation. That allowed the pilots to maintain greater situational awareness and reduce their chance of being spotted by the enemy. And the two pairs could still split an attack on their own. The pilots who spotted the enemy would become the leader of the pair, or even the whole, during the duration of the attack, as he had the best situational awareness at that moment. This wide-awake group of pilots were going to achieve the gobsmacking kill ratio of 16 to 1 during the Winter War, mainly because the Russians continued to use the Vic formation. The Vic formation has at least three and sometimes more aircraft that fly in close formation with the leader at the apex and the rest of the flight en echelon to the left and right, the whole resembling the letter V as in the aviation phonetic alphabet V for Victor. The formation remains in use today, just out of interest. The RAF used the Vic formation during the Battle of Britain mainly because they had trained their pilots in the system and didn't want to change it during a period of intense attack by the Luftwaffe. When the campaign was over, Fighter Command experimented with and adopted the pair and four arrangements, but they could fly in echelon or in line astern to aid in identification. 
Douglas Bader of 242 Squadron experimented with the Finger 4 arrangement and found it beneficial. By 1941, it was in general use in the RAF. However, when the Americans began their bombing campaigns in 1942, the bombers deployed a three-plane Victor called an Element, the V. Stacks of these elements were configured to form a defensive bombing formation called the Combat Box. And the Combat Boxes involved full squadrons, groups or entire wings and could produce huge firepower and offer mutual support, but casualties remained high without fighter escort. The exception was the U.S. Navy, whose fighter pilots developed a system they called the Thatch Weave, whereby two fighters would cover one another from attack from the rear. This proved highly successful against the Japanese in World War II. Back in Finland, to prevent their aircraft from being destroyed on the ground, the Finns distributed the planes to many different airfields and hid them in nearby forests. The Finns constructed decoys and built shrapnel protection walls for the aircraft. Soviet air raids on Finnish airfields usually caused little or no damage as a result, and often resulted in the interception of the attackers by the Finns as the Soviet bombers flew home. The Russians were determined to smash Finnish infrastructure, but their bombing campaigns were largely a failure. The Red Air Force took aim in particular at the railway lines, but these would be fixed within a few hours of their being hit by the bombing raids. The Russians also bombed small village depots, splintering them to bits, but as historian William Trotter notes in his book A Frozen Hell, it was like using a shotgun to kill a gnat. As the Russians discovered, there are fewer transportation targets easier to repair than a severed railway line. The Red Air Force made the cardinal mistake of aiming at civilians, and particularly the Helsinki-Vipuri railway line, which was crowded with women and children fleeing the war. Only 5% of total man-hours were lost across Finland to Russian bombing, a rather pathetic indictment of the strategy of bombing towns that didn't matter to the overall winter war campaign. The Russians loved using incendiary bombs on the wooden Finnish houses, destroying entire villages, and at the same time turning the civilians into even more implacable enemies. The Red Air Force got into the habit of strafing hospitals and hospital trains, so the Finns ended up painting over any red crosses that were visible from the air. The bombing campaign turned into a propaganda coup for the Finns. Up until then, the only other examples of this form of warfare had taken place in Nanking, Guernica, Madrid and Warsaw, and the Russians' wanton attacks generated a wave of moral outrage across the world. As the Israelis are learning to their detriment in Gaza, using dumb bombs to flatten apartments and homes is a propaganda own goal, whatever your thoughts are on the efficacy of this strategy. Finnish pilots were an elitist and highly regarded group of men. Women did not fly combat missions during the Winter War, although the Russians were later to use women quite extensively during the defense of Stalingrad, for example. The Finnish biplane's cruising speed was half of the Russian fighter aircraft, so any pilot flying for the Finnish Air Force would need dollops of courage. The Fokker D-21 was far slower than the Russian MS-406. It had four 7.9mm machine guns. Its airspeed was 286 miles per hour, only slightly quicker than the bombers it was trying to shoot down. Those were the Russian SB-2s and Aleutian DB-3s. By the end of December... The French had sent Moraine Solnia 406s, much quicker aircraft interceptors, that flew at 302 miles per hour and were highly maneuverable. Armed with a 20mm cannon that fired through the propeller and a pair of 7.5mm machine guns in the wings, they were going to cause pandemonium, particularly 
in March. Britain dispatched 30 Gloucester gladiators, noble biplanes that had the engines adapted for the freezing climate, but the ancient 303 machine guns were hopelessly outclassed by the Russian planes, and in the first 10 days of action, 18 of the 30 Gloucester gladiators were shot down. The Russians deployed the Tupolev SB-2s, similar in design to the German Heinkel HE-111, which could carry 1,100 pounds of bombs and was protected by four machine guns. Its big problem was unprotected fuel tanks in the wings. When hit, they would explode or burst into flames almost immediately. The larger Lushin DB-3 carried 2,200 pounds of bombs for long-range sorties or 5,000 pounds on short runs. The Red Air Force fighters, such as the Polikarpov I-16, was armed with two 7.62 machine guns and two 20mm cannon. But it was slightly slower than the French MS-406s at lower altitudes, and in fact only marginally faster than the Fokkers. So one of Finland's most extraordinary moments in the aerial war was what Finnish air ace Lieutenant Savanto achieved when he took on a formation of SB-2 bombers single-handedly on January 6th shooting down half a dozen in four minutes. By the end of the war, the tough pilots of Finland had shot down 240 Red Air Force planes, losing 26 of their own. Finnish anti-aircraft gunners were also very busy through the war. Estimates vary, but it's believed they shot down around 440 Red Air Force planes, these being the confirmed kills where the wreckage of the downed plane fell behind Finnish lines. With that little rummage through the air war, we'll focus next episode what was going on in the third week of January 1940. The Russian bear was going to arouse itself. This frozen situation could not continue. Finland's courageous struggle had bloodied and bruised the Russians, but Moscow, and in particular Stalin, who determined to deal with the Finns, and began to line up an impressive array of reinforcements. What happened next is for next episode. You can head off to the website desmondlatham.blog for more details about this and my other shows. Until we meet again... Goodbye.